Well, uh, we've been, begun a series on uh, the book of Colossians, and um, today my role is to provide a snapshot of what life was uh, like in uh, the first century in um, this town, because you couldn't really call it a city, this town of uh, Colossae in the first century. And uh, what I'd like to do is to help us appreciate that the recipients of this letter were actually real people living within a, a, a real context, and a context that was actually very, very different to the world, um, can I say, fortunately, that, that we, we happen to find ourselves in. And so over the past couple of weeks, thanks Jess, if you want to kind of do the the PowerPoint thing. Over the past couple of weeks, uh, Shane has presented us with a concept for interpreting, um, interpreting Scripture. And um, he's framed that around these three words, uh, them, us, and me. And what Shane has suggested, and I, and I firmly agree with him, is that before we can determine what the Bible might be saying to us as a community or to uh, you or I as as an individual, we first have to ask the question, um, what did it mean to them? What what did it mean to the original recipients of of this uh, text? It's so important that we actually understand um, the the context into which um, this uh, letter was uh, sent and received. We need to know that this kind of this letter that was that came from Paul was sent by well most scholars believe it was Paul. There's been some debate over the last couple of hundred years as to whether uh, he was really the author, but let's assume it was Paul. Um, Paul wasn't writing into a vacuum. There was real stuff um, happening in uh, in people's lives in. The, city, the, the town of Colossae, which was, which was prompting the letter uh, that, that uh, Paul wrote. Um, there was a, a, a social backdrop. There were uh, dominant cultural, cultural themes. There were ways in which these people were experiencing life that was framing the, the context for this epistle. And our failure to appreciate um, the context of Paul's letter to the Colossians, or in fact any, um, any book of the Bible, will lead us to make um, false assumptions. Um, and we will end up simply interpreting the Bible through our own um, lens of our own time and place. And so by providing something of a, a background or a backdrop to this letter... What we're trying to do is to kind of situate ourselves in that world as best as we can, although it's incredibly difficult to do so, but to provide a bit of a framework to at least understand what was going on for these original recipients um, so that we can then create a bit of a, a, a bridge between them, us, and then us as individuals. And so today we're not going to really take any time to discuss... Um, the author, the authorial intent, why the letter was written, or even um, what the letter might be saying to us. What we're just trying to do is give us a kind of a a little glimpse um, into 
what it was like for these followers of Jesus um, in this uh, place called Colossae. How does that sound? Great. You're free to kind of put your hand up and ask questions and make statements, okay, with that kind of community. So I think it's time for the next PowerPoint, Jess. You can wake up now. All right, uh, here's a map of the... Um, of what was uh, the Roman Empire in the first century. And um, the town of Colossae was in this kind of section here where it says Asia. I know we all kind of think of Asia as being sort of China and etc. But actually, in those days, that is actually uh, modern-day southwest, um, southwest Turkey. Um, but that was uh, the province of Asia or, or um, Asia... Asia Minor, as it was known then. And that particular um, area of, of the world had been colonised by a succession of empires. It was just unfortunately geographically positioned between east and west. And sadly, what had happened was um, it, this period of time, the first century, um, uh, this region uh, was colonised by by the Romans, but prior to that, there were the Greeks, and prior to that, there were the Persians. It was always somebody else that had come in and overtaken, overtaken uh, the land. And whilst um, uh, Colossae was primarily a Gentile population, what's really interesting is that the town also had a sig- significant number of Jewish residents. And I did some study, and I discovered that in 2213 uh, BC, uh, it's recorded that there were about 2,000 Jewish families that had moved to this area. One, one assumes from, um, from Judea here down, kind of this part of the map. They relocated up into uh, the Colossae area because of the wines and because of the spa baths that were in the area. So good on them. So that was quite a reasonable, by this time, depends on who you read, um, their estimates of around about 12,000 to possibly 50,000 um, Jewish uh, people who have, um, who have settled in this area. Um, the next PowerPoint. Thanks, Jess. And so on this map, you can see here that uh, Colossae had uh, two close neighbours, uh, Hierapolis and Laodicea. And some of those uh, other towns will be quite familiar uh, to you, Laodicea, Ephesus, Smyrna, Sardis, Philadelphia, Thyatira, and uh, Pergamum. Um, anybody kind of resonate with where they might come, might have heard those names before? Yeah, they were the seven churches that are mentioned um, in uh, the book of Revelation. So it's in that in that particular uh, geographical um, space. So Colossae was, uh, or had been, on the the main um, trade route between the port city of Ephesus, which was about 150 kilometres due west of of Colossae. And it sat between Ephesus and the Middle East and Iraq, and uh, what is today Iraq and Iran. And it was on the main uh, trade route. And because of that... Um, it's highly likely that they would have been exposed to a, a range of various cultures, um, various political and um, religious influences and ideas. So there was a sense that at one time in its, in its history it had been relatively cosmopolitan. 
That is until um, the Roman Empire uh, came in and they introduced a new road system that actually bypassed uh, Colossae and kind of went through uh, Laodicea. And so as a result of that, um, by the time uh, of the first century, um, Colossae had lost its place as a, as a, um, a major commercial um, trade centre. And what had happened in AD 17, there had been a, a fairly major earthquake in the area that had kind of caused some destruction and devastation. And uh, actually what happened is possibly within a year or two after the Colossian church received this letter from Paul, another devastating earthquake hit that basically um, brought about the demise of um, of of the town, and by AD 400, it had completely um, disappeared off the map. I'm not sure if there's another, um, I'm not sure what the next PowerPoint is, yeah. So that's Colossae today. Um, there's uh, actually very, very little there. What's really interesting also about Colossae is it's the only um, sort of uh, town or city that's kind of mentioned in, uh, in the New Testament that has had no significant archaeological um, work done on it. Um, and so it's, uh, yeah, it's quite sad. Yeah, it's quite sad. So there you go. I think there is a university from Australia, possibly, I think it might be Flinders, that is looking at doing some excavation work um, over there. So if we're going to understand um, something of, um, of what life was like um, for these people at this time, kind of the first important thing to appreciate is the dominance of uh, the Roman Empire on uh, day-to-day life of the Colossians. At the time, about a quarter of the world's um, population lived under Roman rule. So from uh, Britain in the north down to, in the south, the north of Africa, to Spain in the west, and um, Syria in the east, that was, all that region was under, under uh, Roman, Roman rule. And the inhabitants of these uh, conquered lands were subject to Roman law, and they paid taxes to, um, to sustain the empire. And Rome was pretty good in that, unlike other empires, and that was this basically if you towed the line, if you behaved yourself, you paid your taxes and you honoured Caesar, then in return uh, Rome would allow you to retain your customs and your traditions and um, maintain your religious uh, practices. Um, which was relatively um, uh, relatively um, sophisticated, but Rome, the Roman Empire, was this strange mix of sophistication and brutality. Um, whilst there was a sense of generosity about Roman rule, allowing people to retain their their customs and their religion, if you didn't tell the tell the line, they reigned with uh, with with an with an iron fist. The other thing about the Roman Empire is that it operated with a very rigid um, class system. And whilst the the boundaries uh, between the different classes, um, uh, you could interact with folks regardless of your status, um, um, those boundaries were legally enforced. 
And sitting at the top of this hierarchical uh, pyramid was the emperor and his family. They, they were at the top of the, the social order within the empire. And uh, people um, worshipped uh, Caesar as God. In fact, uh, what was known as the imperial cult or the, um, the, uh, the Caesar cult was actually at the, at the time of the writing of the New Testament, it was actually the fastest growing uh, religion um, in the world. Um, so this imperial cult or the, uh, the cult of Caesar, everywhere you went, you were confronted with, um, with new temples or, or, or shrines that were being built um, for the purpose of of worshipping or honouring honoring Caesar. And so you'd go into the town centre, the city centre, there would be a shrine or some image would be, have been constructed to remind you that Caesar was divine. Um, vases and coins and, uh, and jewellery and cooking utensils and, and art all bore the image of the em- emperor. And so the imperial cult um, was, was all prevailing. Uh, there were festivals and um, feasts were held throughout the year um, to celebrate the emperor and, uh, and his, his rule. I guess the closest thing that we would have today within our, in our world would be um, Kim Jong-un, is that right? Uh, the North, kind of that totalitarian... A dictator um, who also proclaims himself to be God. That's the, probably the only thing that we would have in our world today that would have any sense of replication with what was taking place uh, with Rome and Caesar worship, um, but it's, it's localised there just to uh, North Korea. And so Caesar was preeminent um, over all things. And this is fascinating. The common titles that, um, that were ascribed to Caesar were this. Caesar was known as the Son of God. Uh, he was known as Saviour and he was known as Lord. They were the, the titles that were ascribed and given to Caesar. Son of God, Saviour and Lord. Ring any bells? Okay. Um, And Caesar's rule was spoken of as being the good news. It was the gospel. Whenever uh, the gospel or the good news was proclaimed, whenever there was a military um, success, or whenever Caesar made a pronouncement, a declaration was made, the gospel, the good news of, of, of Caesar was declared. And the result of, of Caesar's rule was essentially threefold. Firstly, was, was fruitfulness or prosperity. Um, was secondly, was peace. And interestingly, thirdly, was the forgiveness of sins or salvation came through Caesar. Prosperity, fruitfulness, peace, and the forgiveness of sins or salvation. Ring any bells. So you've got stuff like son of God, Saviour, Lord, um, fruitfulness, peace, and uh, the forgiveness of sins. You can begin to see already that there is going to be some conflict that is about to emerge, given that Christ is also called Son of God, Saviour, 
and Lord. That he, his message is good news. It is the gospel. And that the fruit of his kingdom and his reign, his rule, is one of, of peace, of fruitfulness, and of salvation. So to proclaim a Lord other than, than Caesar uh, led to imprisonment and, uh, and probable death. What's interesting, the, the Latin word for religion, religio, actually literally means something that binds. Religion is something that binds. And in the empire, the purpose of religion was to bind people, that is the subjects of Rome, to the emperor. That was the purpose of the imperial cult, was to bind the subjects of Rome to the emperor. Um, in, his, uh, in his book, uh, In Colossae and in Christ, uh, a guy called Derek uh, Tidball writes, Christianity was a minority and deviant belief with attending costs. No one was going to fall into it or accept it, accept it pa- passively. It would have been a brave and con- conscious choice to identify with the proclamation about Christ. To be a follower of Jesus in Colossae was an incredibly courageous and brave decision that was made. So underneath um, the emperor emperor in this hierarchical system, uh, there was a class known as the patricians. Uh, They were the wealthy male elite, um, often owners of um, great uh, swathes of land, and they provided the empire with the political, uh, religious, and and military leadership that it needed to govern and rule. And beneath the patricians sat the senators who were the political and um, judicial um, class, and underneath them were the equestrians, and as one might expect, they were were the uh, retired Roman uh, cavalry um, who uh, became the tax collectors and the bankers and the exporters. And so together um, with the emperor, the patricians, the senate and the equestrians, these were the rich and the powerful. Uh, They lived in in beautiful homes. They lived extravagant um, lifestyles. Rome had indeed, and the emperor had indeed, brought prosperity and peace, but only for a very small elect group of people. In fact, about 1% of the population were in that category. I don't know if you've just recently heard about all of the talk about the world's 1% owning so much of the world's wealth. Um... There are a lot of parallels between Rome and our current global economic system, which we won't go into now, but I'm sure it will come out at some point. So 99% of the people that, um, li- that uh, were part of the empire actually lived in uh, poverty and squalid conditions. Most of them lived on bread and porridge. That was the staple daily diet. Um, the... The working class poor, if you like, uh, were called the, the plebeians, which we get our word, the plebs. They were the, kind of the, about two-thirds of the population sat 
within this category. And they were free Roman citizens, and probably in Colossae they would have been farmers, um, artisans, um, traders, and their lives were pretty well uh, dominated by work and the struggle just to survive. And then beneath um, the plebeians were uh, the slaves who made up about one-third of um, the population of the empire. Slavery was and is um, an absolutely dehumanising, abusive and degrading institution. And back then, a slave was simply the property of the slave owner. So a slave owner could um, do whatever they wanted to with their slave. They could um, sell the slave, rent the slave out, have sex with the slave, um, beat the slave, brand uh, the slave, and kill the slave without any um, form of punishment. Um, slaves were, I guess, were a dehumanised uh, class of people. And even if a, a slave was able to gain their freedom, um, which did happen, it was a, a relatively regular occurrence, but when it did, um, there was such a strong stigma attached to slavery um, that um, it was almost like once a slave, always a slave. You could never really shake off um, this sense of of inferiority, this, this stigma of, of uh, slavery. And so Roman society was, was uh, based around this idea that everybody had a, a fixed place in society and only very, very occasionally did you move out of that. You're a Jew, you're a Gentile, you're a male or a female, uh, you were a slave or a free person, you were circumcised or uncircumcised. You knew, you knew your, um, your status, your position in the world, and your life was pretty well predetermined for you from, from birth. What you wore, the food you ate, where you sat at the meal table, at the evening meal, all of that was legislated for you. Without going into any, any detail, um, Paul's letter to the Colossians begins to mess with the social structures of the day and begins to provocatively suggest that they needed to be dismantled. The second thing about, uh, about life in first century Colossae was that the primary network to which people uh, belonged um, was that people were embedded in what was called their kinship family or their, their, their household. Um, and back in those days, a household wasn't just, you know, mum, dad and, you know, 2.1 kids or whatever it is. It included um, intergenerational um, uh, familial Relationships, but beyond that, it would include uh, servants, slaves, even perhaps um, a bus business partners, or also also friends. And like uh, politics and like business, uh, power in the family was um, was centred in the male. 
And the, the head of the family or the, or the household, this kinship um, circle, um, was the oldest living male called a, a, a pater familias, who was the father of the family. And the pater familias possessed absolute power uh, over their children and their household. To the point that when a, when a baby was born, let's say a slave um, uh, had a baby, what the midwife would do would uh, place that baby on the ground and um, only if they, the pater familias picked up that child was it accepted into the family. The father of the family had the power, the, the choice over who lived and who died. Kind of a system that seems very archaic to us, but in that time, people had a deep sense of, of, uh, of allegiance to the kinship family. Families would honour and worship their household spirits, and they operated by a uh, clearly defined household code. So they were, everybody knew their roles and responsibilities uh, within the family. And as you look at Colossians uh, three eighteen through to chapter four and verse one, um, Paul actually begins again to be subversive, and he begins to redefine um, the family structure and the household code. And what Paul was doing was he was actually following what Jesus had set in motion. I don't know if we just so appreciate how radical a message and a radical lifestyle that. Christianity calls us to. Jesus, for example, when he called uh, James and John, he called them to leave their, their obligation to the family business. What Jesus was doing was beginning to break down or sow the seed of a, a, um, of a dismantling of this uh, kinship household structure that was firmly in place. Remember when he said, let the dead bury their dead? He was attacking the household structure. He raised the question one time when um, you know, his mum and his family came looking for him, and he throws out the question, who are my mother and my brothers? He was beginning to dismantle the allegiance to the family unit. Do you have a question? Yeah. You might have had an understanding that there was also a tradition around, you know, teachers and discipleship and following that Jesus was would it, it wouldn't have been so foreign for James and John to follow some sort of teacher and lead the family. So how does that sit with this notion of dismantling that? Well, because it was be reinforced by other acts, such as saying to a person who was wanting to go and bury their father, saying let the dead bury their dead. There was this obligation as a family member to, it was unlikely that that father was actually dead. It was probably the father was an older, older age and would soon die. So there was this family obligation to, to look after and care. And Jesus making that statement, let the dead bury their dead. So it was a, a range of things that um, the story of, of the, the, um, the parable of the, the, the lost son, again, would be another example where... Uh, the father in that story would have had the right to kind of kill his son for um, his actions. 
Um, so there's a range of things. And I think what was um, taking place was um, Jesus and Paul were broadening the kinship bonds to include the family of God, but even beyond the family of God, to help us realize that it's not just our nuclear family or our traditional family that we are called to have an allegiance to. We're actually called to have an allegiance to the human family. There are other scriptures that hold our commitment to our, 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 our household or our kinship family intention. About in James, James talks about, for example, um, you know, caring for our, um, or no, it's in Timothy, caring for our, our family. But at the same time, there is this breaking down of that and saying it's, we don't just care for those who are part of our household. We have a responsibility and allegiance to the community of God. But beyond that, also, we need to see the whole world, all of humanity, as our family. We are linked together. So what Paul and Jesus were doing were um, reconstituting what family ties and what family loyalty looked like. Um, the third thing to understand what life was like for a person living in Colossae was um, the, the honour-shame cis culture that uh, prevailed. Richard uh, Brow writes, honour, understood as one's reputation in the eyes of the public, was the core value of the ancient Mediterranean world. To many, especially the elite of ancient society, it was dear as life itself. So what people did was they placed, within this culture, people placed, um, placed ple- uh, honour uh, before pleasure and personal safety. You would rather die than lose honour. And what honour was, was honour was, was about one's status in the community and the, st- the esteem that you were given. And it affected every area of life, how one behaved, who you married, who you would entertain or have, it, have at your table, who you did business with, um, how, you, how you dressed... And if your honour was ever questioned, um, it was expected that you would retaliate with with violence. And so the single most important um, thing in life was to be thought well of by other people. That was the the governing value within, um, within within the world, or the Roman world at that time. Um... And honour was largely inherited. If you were born into a wealthy family, you got a, you got a great kickstart in life in regards to honour because you were automatically held in a, with a high degree of esteem. And shame was to be avoided at all costs. If you were a coward or if you, you failed in business or you somehow dishonoured uh, the, go- the gods or dishonoured the empire or your children did something, acted disrespectfully or discredited you, discredited you, you lived with a deep sense of shame. And there was nothing worse in life than this carrying a sense of shame. Now, within the empire, crucifixion, um, uh, kind of the Roman uh, form of execution, was t- considered to be the most shameful death one could have. Um, Not only for the person who was being crucified, but also for 
their family, for their friends, and for their followers. So to have an association with anybody who had been crucified was regarded as being the most shameful thing. Christianity, again, at its core, was at, at, at odds with the shame, honour, value system that dominated society. Firstly, in, in the book of Colossians, Paul is proposing that one's honour doesn't come from birth, it doesn't come from um, wealth, it doesn't come from, from success, nor does it come from your behaviour. What Paul is proposing, not just in Colossians, but elsewhere in his letters, he's proposing that one's honour is a gift that is given by God through grace. And secondly, what Christianity does is calls its followers to embrace and identify with the shame of the cross. Christians were swearing their allegiance to a crucified Lord. It was completely at odds with the central value system that society operated by. And finally, um, it's important to understand what life was like um, for the Colossian, um, Colossian Christians at the time. Um, they lived in a world where there was the imperial cult or the, 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 the Caesar cult. Um, but at the same time, uh, there was a plethora of gods. Um, there was a, a belief that there were cosmic forces that were at work in the world uh, that influenced people's day-to-day -day lives. And that these gods needed to be appeased. And so there were certain rituals that you would have to attend to in order to, uh, please, to please the gods. So it was the imperial cult, but also these cosmic forces that there was this belief affected the weather patterns and kind of day-to-day -day -day life. And so these Christians were taking steps away from not only the imperial cult, but the traditional um, practice of, 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 of um, cosmic cultic, uh, cultic worship. The thing about the Christian, the Christian church it's not, uh, back then was not like uh, we experience church today. Firstly, the community of God actually met in a home. In the church in uh, Colossae, um, there is one person mentioned, his name is Philemon. Um, so uh, Philemon was probably an av averagely wealthy person, and so he would have fitted into, you know, in kind of given the standard villa situation, he would have been able to fit between 30 to 50 people in his home, where people would come to worship. There may have been other homes that housed the Christian community in Colossae. It doesn't suggest there was, but it doesn't say there wasn't. So there was possibly between 30, perhaps up to about 150 Christians to whom Paul's letter to the Colossians um, was addressed. 
And they were made up of the various levels of society. Um, Osik and Balch write, it is between the elites, that's the emperor and the equestrians and the senate and um, that, that group, the patricians, um, and those of no status at all, that most Christians are to be located. Urban artisans, merchants, traders, slaves, freed men and free, freed women, most who would fall into the categories of inferiors or um, humiliaries, that's those who were low-born. Though some members and families of distinction and probably some of, of stateless people, that is, people that were even below the level of slavery. So what they're saying is the Christian church consisted of, except for the elite, people from all um, facets of or all levels of society. And so when these Christians uh, met in the home of Philemon and Colossae, their worship services would have probably uh, followed the pattern of, um, of traditional synagogue worship, which was uh, prayers, uh, some songs, uh, a reading of a portion of scripture from the Old Testament, a homily. Um, but the, the distinct difference um, of the gathering of the Christian church was the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which was actually a round a meal table. At the table of Philemon in uh, this town of Colossae, men and women, slave and free, Jew, Gentile, men and women, would talk about what following Jesus meant for their daily lives in the midst of empire in the midst of an honour-shame society. They would have discussed what it was like to try to work out what it meant being a Christian in the midst of entrenched um, family structures, social divisions and hierarchical relationships imposed by the emperor and um, society at large. They were challenging the very fabric of, uh, of society. They were mostly um, a desperate people who sensed that in the message of Jesus, the promise of a kingdom greater than Rome, a God and a community who cared for the poorest members of society, a God and a community in whom people could find refuge and hope. When this little band of believers meeting in Philemon's house received this letter from Paul um, around about AD 60, it needed to be read aloud because only 10 to 15% of the population could read. Quite probably in a town like Colossae, it would be a lot less than that. I trust you realise that what they were hearing was nothing short of mind-blowing. Paul was proposing to them a whole new way of seeing the world. 
you want to just uh, pop up the final thing there? What he was inviting them to do was to reimagine what life would be like if Christ and not the power of Caesar and the empire was sovereign. He was calling them to reimagine what life would be like if their identity wasn't shaped by the family you were born into or the level of your wealth or how you behaved, but your identity was shaped as a beloved son or daughter of God. He was asking them to reimagine what the world would be like if your primary allegiance wasn't um, to your kinship family or to your household, but to the household of God and to the broader human family. It was highly, highly subversive. It was highly countercultural. That's what the Colossians were hearing when Paul's letter was read to them. The question that we have to ask in the light of what it meant to them is how, what, if anything, does the book of Colossians have to say to us and to you and I as individuals? In the inner north of Melbourne in the 21st century, is there any relevance to what they faced, to what we face today? That's what we'll be unpacking um, over the coming weeks and months. I've been... um, Shane divided us up into four sections in regards to our response to the Bible. Um, Those who were excited by the Bible, um, those who were bored by the Bible, those who were confused by the Bible, and those who were challenged by the Bible. I've been reading the book of Colossians um, and doing a whole lot of reading and a whole lot of research And I have to say, the book of Colossians is terrifying me because of the implications for my life. It is scaring me because of its subversiveness, its radicalness. It's challenge. It's going to be a really, really interesting journey. Um, fasten your seat belts. Take a uh, a tablet before you come. <laughs> a Valium, and you'll be okay. You'll survive. Any any questions before we close? Right, you. Uh, can you say the same? Would you like to get the 
Um, the book of Galatians is touching on, on something quite different, as, as is the book of Philippians. Um, I don't want to give away what really sits at the heart of, um, of Colossians right now, because um, that's not my job this morning, um, other than to say it's very subversive and incredibly challenging. But I'm not telling you what it's, in what way it's likely to be subversive for us or challenging for us. Well, it, it wasn't. It was in the sense in, of um, no, it wasn't. Not not in the same way. But it was subversive in the sense of um, the message of grace, which it can book say the book of Galatians contains contained, which was calling people to draw a righteousness or a sense of right standing with God through grace alone. Um, this probably sits at the, the core of, of, um, of the book of Galatians. Um, Ephesians is radical in the sense that it's suggesting that through Christ there is the creation of a new branch of humanity consisting of Jew, Gentile, uh, male, female, which Paul also hints at also in, in Colossians. But this theme of a, of, a, of a new entity that's stepped into the human race as a byproduct of, of the cross of Christ and the, the absence of division. So every one of Paul's letters is, well, not every one, we had everyone, including Philemon, which is a, a, the book of Philemon, which you've got to read in connection with Colossians. Short, short letter, incredibly subversive. Yeah. So, why don't we uh, stand this morning? Uh, don't forget, if you'd like prayer, this for uh, have any prayer needs, there'll be some folks available to pray with you this morning. We're just going to stand for the benediction. Loving Father, we thank you for receiving our worship, hearing our prayers, feeding us with your word and encouraging us in our fellowship. As we leave this place, take us and use us to love and serve you and all people in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.